Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 207. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. And Quarter, whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. And uh, before I get to some other announcements, uh, this is our last episode of 2021. So I'd like to wish all of you a very happy, healthy, safe new year. Again, thank you all so much for listening, uh, for supporting Planet Microcap over the years. I'm very excited for everything that we have lined up for 2022. And most importantly, just I hope to see some of you in 2022. I'm ready to get out there, mingle. Let's let's do some in-person stuff. And uh, again, uh, but for the time being, let's stay safe. Let's get through uh, the new year. Let's get through some of these colder winter months and, uh, and look forward to a great 2022. Speaking of which, uh, we are very excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Sean Badlani. He is the founder and CIO of Honest Capital LLC, and we were introduced by recent podcast guest, uh, David Polanski from Immersion Investments. Thank you, David. Sean was featured in Reuters earlier this year, January 2021, for Honest Capital's outperformance and the bets he placed since launching his fund in May 2020. An incredible story on its own. Uh, We discussed starting a fund in the midst of all the uncertainty and why he placed his bets on cannabis. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 207 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Sean Badlani. 
This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream was built by Mosaic, and unlike any other transcript libraries, Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And I'm very excited for today's guest, uh, who was introduced to, uh, we were introduced to each other vis-a-vis David Polanski from Immersion Investments. So David, big shout out. Thank you, sir. And uh, upon doing some further research, I I think y'all will be really excited to learn a bit more about what our guest has in store for us and everything that he's accomplished. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Sean Badlani. He is the founder and chief investment officer at Honest Capital. Sean, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Great, great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. But by the way, remind me, where, where are you based? You're in San Fran, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm right outside San Francisco. Okay. Yeah, I, we've been dealing with some uh, crazy weather the last couple of days. So I know we, we had a, a, a false start this morning getting on with the, the tech stuff, but it, right. Thankfully, listen, everybody, LA, we, we have a lot to complain about. You know, everything is really difficult. But, uh, you know, when you have a couple of days of hard weather, it's t- sometimes hard to connect. But long story short, Sean, this is our first time doing an interview together, um, our second conversation together. So I- I'd love to start off with your passion for investing. Where, where did that all start? Where did it all begin? Like, let- let's start from there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not someone who uh, just kind of like knew from a, you know, knew like from coming out of the womb that he was like born to be an investor. I mean, I had a lot of interest growing up. Um, my family had a lot of doctors and engineers. So I was always kind of math, science interested. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I took an economics class that I really um, thought was super interesting, just kind of like applying math but applying it to like, you know, really complicated, uh, you know, there's no more complicated system than like people and how they behave, you know? And so just kind of like trying to take a social science and applying math to it, I thought was interesting. And then my dad also, he was an engineer, but like he was always kind of like interested in the stock market. And so when I was in high school, I would kind of mess around with him trading some stocks. But it's funny because in retrospect, I realized we had absolutely no idea what we were doing at that point. I mean, it, it kind of, it's a kind of a good reminder because it shows you like, you know, when you're looking at the market, how many people are like that, you know, who are just kind of like have absolutely no idea what they're doing, but they're, they're trading, trying to make money. And so, you know, for me, uh, my first job out of college was in investment banking. And then I think one of the things that really kind of 
uh, got me way more interested in the stock market and investing was when I, I worked at Blackstone, um, not in their private equity group, in like an investment banking advisory group uh, that they had. And one of the things that really kind of like uh, ended up kind of setting my career off in, in this direction was my group got hired as advisors by Bill Ackman at Pershing Square. Uh, this was back in 2004 when his fund was brand new. It was under a billion dollars. Like he was not a famous or infamous person like he is now. And um, so I got to work really closely with him on uh, his, I think, the first activist investment that he made out of Pershing Square, which was in Wendy's. Um, and at the time, Wendy's owned Tim Hortons. And he was the biggest shareholder of Wendy's. He wanted Wendy's to spin off Tim Hortons because he thought Tim Hortons would trade at a much higher multiple um, on its own because it was growing faster than Wendy's and it was more franchised. So anyway, I just I, when I was 22-year-old investment banking analyst, I got to work pretty closely with him and his team. And, you know, it, it just, it really actually changed the way I thought about investing because when I was in high school with my dad, we were like trading stocks. You know, but observing Bill Ackman and obviously, you know, he's kind of a polarizing figure and, you know, he does a lot of things really well, but, you know, a lot of things uh, obviously polar are polarizing that he does. But so anyway, you can have your own opinion about him, but but at least I took away some really like huge lessons just from observing him. And it, it was just just more the business owner mentality of like, you know, thinking like a business owner when you buy a stock pretending like you own the whole company, being prepared to own it forever, you know, uh, uh, th those kinds of mindsets that you really should have if you're buying any stock. Uh, or, that was kind of really, I think, what kind of a light bulb moment. Early hey, Sean, let, let, I want to stop you there because this is something, you know, the, the one that's, a, that's a, some great anecdotes, you know, from, from that you learned from Bill. And I want to dive a little deeper just right right here and now on, on that, because we, we've talked about that quite a bit. You know, as an investor, you want to think about owning, you know, uh, owning, you're owning a part of a business, you know, you're, right. you're buying a business, you're not just buying a stock, you know, how does that manifest for you? You know, because you, you think you're like, oh, it all makes sense. Yeah, we're buying a business. Oh, great. But like that means that means totally different things to so many different people. So for you, what what did that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan. I mean, like a lot of people are, obviously. And, you know, he, he always says like, uh, or I think one of his quotes is like, you know, if you wouldn't be if you're not prepared to own this company for the next 10 years, don't even think about owning it, trying to own it for the next 10 minutes, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, so to me, I think that's, that's really what it means is like, you know, it's so tempting to kind of like, you know, buy a stock that you think is really beaten down and, and sell it when, you know, try, try to catch it, it kind of going back up and then sell it. Um, and it's tempting to do that. And, you know, I mean, I, I still do do, do that sometimes, I'm not going to lie, but but I think what has changed for me is I want to make sure that even if I'm doing those kinds of things, which I think could be shorter term holdings, I still want to make sure that the underlying business is a business that I like and I'm comfortable with. And, um, you know, maybe I don't want to own it for the next 10 years, but if I, if I'm wrong about the short term, 
I don't want to be stuck in something that I hate, you know, like I, I at least want it to be a business that I think is a real good, a good business, you know? So I think that's one of the things that's evolved over my career is I think earlier in my career, I would be more willing to do that with like, you know, businesses that are lower quality. Um, but now I just, I just feel like life is too short and anything I buy, I want to, you know, there's thousands of stocks you can buy. So like, why not be selective and try to make sure it's a business that actually has some kind of, um, mode or competitive advantage or some, some growth opportunity or, or, or right. something, you know? Hey, you know, this is a mental model that I, I don't hear a lot about of, but you know, cause we all, again, like we talk about, you know, as a, as a, uh, as an investor, you want to buy a business versus a stock. Has anybody, I've never heard about the idea of what I want to join this business. What I want to work here, you know, like that's yeah. always, that's something I think about quite a bit in terms of when you're looking at evaluating a stock. Like what, I, is this a company I'd be passionate about? Is this a company that I actually want to, you know, uh, I wouldn't mind going, going to work eight to five every single day. I mean, are these things that you think about as well? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And I'm really glad you brought that up actually, because I do think about that and I don't feel like everybody does. I mean, I, I, I feel like for me, you know, yeah, investing is what I've chosen to do for my job, but this is also my life, right? And so like, I want it to be fun. And so I like investing in companies that, you know, I'm more excited to kind of learn about, um, because I, I am interested in them. And so, you know, I've worked for different people who are really cold and emotionless and like calculated, and they don't care what the underlying business is, you know, they just want to make money. And don't get me wrong, I want to make money too. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this. But it's way more fun if you know, you like what you're investing in. And so I am trying to have fun while I'm doing it. And, you know, I've heard uh, people, you know, people always talk about like, you know, how you need to be kind of like, don't get attached to your stocks, you know, like, you know, be emotionless. And, um, you know, I feel like one of my most contrarian kind of uh, beliefs is like, or not beliefs, but just one of the one of the things I do that is kind of like different is like I do get attached to my stocks. Like I'm, and I'm, I'm I I'm okay with that because again, like you know, this is my life. This is fun, and I like I get emotionally attached to stocks. Like I'm not a, not afraid to admit it. At least I know that it's. I, I feel like that's at least one thing that's important. Is like at least you have to be aware of. Uh, you know, your own tendencies and your biases and things like that. So like, I do get emotionally attached to stocks. I think it's okay, as long as you realize what's happening. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter, and that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. 
Now back to the show. I, I actually really appreciate that honesty because I feel like a lot of folks probably do. I mean, I know, I know I have in the past. Right. You know? And, and it's just human nature, you know, I mean, right. look, there's a very, there's a probably a 0.1% of folks that can be like that. And I'm reading about a few of them in, in William Green's book right now that I'm very, I've, I've been very much enjoying, but yeah. It's it's a very small percentage of folks. <laughs> I, I I would think you know yeah. like you yeah. can't help but get upset if like you know you make a big bet or even a small bet on a company based on a thesis that you worked a lot you know you worked really hard yeah. on. Yeah. I mean like that's that's hard, man. Like <laughs> you know like yeah. even to have a little bit of attachment is 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 okay. Yeah. No, I I agree. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And that, so that's why I would say it's just like, at least, at least try to be aware of, of what's happening. And that will hopefully at least, um, you know, help you navigate it in a more, in a, in a, at least hopefully an incrementally more profitable manner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you make money, you know, the, while right. you're attached, right. of course. Right. So, okay. So, so uh, let's get back to, I, I want to catch us up to, to what led to your founding of Honest Capital. So, you're at, at Blackstone, had some great experiences learning from, from Bill Ackman um, right. uh, or had an experience with that. You know, right. so firstly, were there any other things that you learned from, from that experience and, and from there, you know, catch us up to then founding Honest Capital? Yeah, I, I mean, I think also just like the concentration of the portfolio as well, you know, like before I had kind of had that experience, um, working with Pershing Square, like I didn't even know it was acceptable to like own, have run a public equity investing fund and only own like eight stocks, you know? So that was like a mind blowing concept to me. I mean, I'm not still not sure it is acceptable, even though I do that today. Like, uh, you know, I guess it's except different people find it acceptable and some still don't. But, um, but anyway, just that also resonated with me too. It's just kind of like, you know what? It's hard to find good ideas. You want to do a lot of work when you do find them. And so, you know, why, you know, why would you own even 20 or 30 stocks, you know, just find a few that you can know really well and that you've been able to get at really good prices. And, you know, that's, that's kind of all you need. Oh, that's all you need to, to really make it work. Um, so anyway, that resonated with me. So, so yeah, after my time there, the rest of my um, kind of um, history. So I, I worked for a few years after that at Canyon Capital in LA. Um, so I was in LA for a few years. And, you know, that that's a great firm. Uh, um, you know, much more of a multi-strat, uh, much more of a kind of credit focused firm. The founders there had worked with Michael Milken in the 80s, you know, like creating the junk bond industry, basically. Uh, and so, um, so I learned a lot about kind of distress, credit investing, which I, you know, I think was, is great skills to have, even though I only focus on equities today. I think it kind of gives you a mindset that is, is helpful in, in, in equity markets, um, just having, having learned kind of how credit markets work and how to navigate those. And, and just really thinking also when you're, when you're a credit investor, like you really focus on downside protection and avoiding mistakes, trying to avoid losing money. So all those lessons really stuck with me. Um, and also, I think it's it's also good training just to learn how to read through credit agreements and bond indentures. I feel like a lot of equity investors don't 
do that or don't know how to do that. And so I feel like sometimes that actually can give you a real edge um, in the equity markets, especially it doesn't happen that often, but in times of distress, like last March, a lot of what I was doing was these kinds of credit analyses, trying to, trying to figure out which companies were set up to kind of ride through the pandemic um, and which ones were not based on kind of the structures of their debt and their capital structures. So, so anyway, I worked at Canyon for a few years. I went back to business school at Harvard, got my MBA, graduated in 2010. And then most of my career until I spent, until I set up my own fund um, from 2010 to 2019, I was working at this fund in San Francisco called Mercado. And it was actually just an amazing coincidence because basically the way it happened was one of the analysts from Pershing Square, this guy named Mick McGuire, who had been the second analyst at Pershing Square, who I had worked with on the Wendy's, um, Tim Hortons deal. Right when I was graduating business school, he was leaving Pershing Square to start his own firm, Marcato. And um, so I got back in touch with him and was super excited to join him because he was doing basically exactly the strategy that I wanted, you know, just really concentrated 10 stock portfolio, multi-year um, investment horizon. And, um, you know, he, he, he was kind of, by the time he left Pershing Square, they had gotten really big. And so they were investing in Procter & Gamble and Target and, and these mega cap companies. And my boss, Mick McGuire, his thinking was, look, that's fine. But, you know, where, where the real excitement is, is in the small and mid caps, right? And so his thinking was, let's take that same Pershing Square approach of, you know, concentrated portfolio, long-term horizon, shareholder engagement, but let's kind of refocus on small and mid caps because that's, that's where the opportunities are. That's where the inefficiently priced stocks are. And also from an engagement or activist perspective, um, there's just so much more opportunity there to, to find companies where you might actually be able to add value by bringing them ideas that they hadn't heard before. They haven't been already been pitched by investment bankers. Um, and it's also just much easier to influence those companies too. You know, if you, if you become a shareholder, it's much easier to talk to the management team, talk to the board. If you show them that you've done thoughtful analysis and done a lot of research on their company, they're much more likely to, to listen to you um, and, uh, you know, kind of hear your ideas. And so, so that was kind of the, the, the idea of Mercado. And like I said, I worked there um, from 2010 to 2019. It was an awesome experience. We, we did run a lot of activist campaigns in companies that were smaller, anywhere from 500 million up to, you know, 5 billion plus kind of market caps. Um, so I got a lot of experience kind of engaging with those companies, um, you know, meeting boards and management teams, kind of, um, you know, kind of forming, forming good relationships with them, having dialogues with them. And in a lot of cases, we definitely got a lot of those companies to do what we were suggesting. And, you know, it, it really, I have plenty of case studies that I'm really proud of where like, I know for sure, definitively, like we added value to those companies. Um, and it was really, really uh, kind of fulfilling to, to find those kinds of situations. Very cool. I mean, do, do you have an experience or, or, or um... I guess an anecdote from during that time that was just uh, 
definitely just added more layers to the to the Sean Onion, I guess you'd say that you wanted to take forward to Honest Capital. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, um, you know, there was. <laughs> I, I think my my favorite investment that I made um, was there. There's this company called Alexander and Baldwin. I don't know if you've heard of it or looked at it, um, but when we, when I found it, um, it was this fascinating company that had started as a, it was based in Hawaii and it had started as a sugar plantation, uh, like in the, in the 1800s, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the exact year, but like mid 1800s, this company had started as a sugar plantation. And you know, fast forward to the 2010s, uh, like, you know, 150 years later, um, they were still in the sugar farming business, actually. Um, but they had also branched out over time. And they owned these two really valuable, but totally different businesses. One of them was this shipping business called Matson, uh, which was a container shipping company, or a container shipping business that basically they had start, started it as an extension of their sugar business to kind of bring their sugar to the mainland. But over time, what it had morphed into was these container ships that went back and forth between California and Hawaii. And it turned into basically the way that everyone in Hawaii gets everything that they need, you know, like from the mainland. And it was like the way that Walmart in Hawaii would like stock their shelves. And it ended up being kind of protected um, by this, U.S. law called the Jones Act. So it was basically like this regulated business uh, where there was no foreign competition allowed. They were able to raise their prices every year. So it was this like, and it was like mission critical to everyone who lived in Hawaii. So it was this super valuable um, kind of monopolistic or oligopolistic business with pricing power um, and, uh, you know, super valuable. But then Alexander Baldwin had this other totally unrelated business, which was a separate outgrowth of their sugar business. And that was a real estate business uh, where basically because they had uh, got into the sugar business in the 1800s in Hawaii, they owned 20% of the island of Maui and 15% of the island of Kauai. <laughs> and it was on their books at the prices they had paid for that land in the 1800s. So it was like on their balance sheet uh, at like $100 an acre. And this land today is worth like $100,000 an acre or something like that, you know? So just totally insane uh, situation. And they had all this valuable real estate in Hawaii. And so it was when I first looked at it, it was only like a billion dollar market cap company, but they had this shipping business that I thought was worth like more than a billion dollars. And then they had all this real estate that was also clearly worth more than a billion dollars, you know? Uh, but it also kind of made sense why it was like under the radar, you know, it was a small company and it was in these two uh, totally unrelated businesses, transportation and real estate. And so um, anyway, like it was kind of obvious to me that they needed to split up the company, you know, cause like 
There were transportation investors, you know, classic kind of business school case study for a spinoff, right? Like there were transportation investors who would love to own the shipping business, but didn't want to own a real estate business or didn't even know how to think about or value a real estate business and vice versa. You had real estate investors who would love to own that real estate, but had zero interest in owning a shipping business. Right. And so anyway, we, um, you know, we, we kind of became the largest shareholder of the company and we um, basically, you know, a lot of our investments were friendly, um, kind of constructivist or suggestivist. Um, you know, this one, it was friendly and constructive, but it was a little more where we kind of went to them. And we were like, look, you guys need to split this up. Otherwise, like, you know, we, you know, we, we're gonna, you know, take some more uh, forceful action if you don't kind of like split this up. And, and by the way, like, here's, you know, we think the stock can double if you split it up. And so you guys all will make a lot more money if you split it up too. And so, so anyway, we convinced them to split it up. And now both of those uh, companies are public. You know, you can, you can buy each of those stocks separately. Matson and Alexander and Baldwin uh, are both publicly traded companies. They're both doing well. And, um, and so anyway, I loved it because it was just, there were so many fascinating things about it. Uh, you know, that the land being valued at the, uh, you know, it's just kind of an account, accounting convention that they had to keep carrying it at their 1800s valuation, you know, and then it was just a great activist investment kind of splitting up the conglomerate. And there were real hard assets, kind of the valuable real estate. So I felt like there was tons of downside protection. And, you know, I got to go to Hawaii for work. So you I was going to say, like, that sounds like that. the main reason <laughs> yeah. I, you even got to just... But uh, well, that, that's that's a really great story. But and by the way, just have to ask: Are you currently shareholder in, in either of the companies anymore? Or I, I'm I'm no longer a shareholder of either company. Um, okay. But um, but you know, I mean, they're both great businesses. I mean, I I I continue to watch both businesses and admire them um, from afar. Very cool. Okay. Well, listen, I want to transition now to what we what we got going on today at Honest Capital. So you actually, you know, when I was doing my my research on you, um, there was a great article that came out uh, on Reuters, uh, published uh, January 15th this year, uh, that said new hedge fund Honest Capital gains 88% with bets on cannabis and others. So, hey, that's a nice little shout out. Not, not too shabby as a new hedge fund guy, right? Um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, Honest Capital and uh, and this bet on cannabis at, at the very least. Love to hear your thoughts there. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, just to kind of catch up to today. So, so I found, I, so I left Mercado at the end of 2019. I started my own fund, Honest Capital, um, in May of 2020. Uh so, you know, it's been a little more than a year and a half that I've been running my own fund. And, you know, the strategy is very concentrated, 10 stock portfolio. I take a multi-year view on the companies, focus on North American small and mid caps that are just kind of under the radar, bigger investors, as you know. And, um, and you know, the timing of the launch was really great. You know, I launched May 1st of 2020. So it was an amazing time to being it was an impossible time to raise money, you know? So at the time I was like, you know, should I even do this because, or should I wait till, you know, allocators can talk to me again and maybe I can raise more money for a day one launch. But at the time I decided to just, you know, like, let me go ahead, let me just launch, even if it's with a smaller amount of capital than I hoped to launch with. 
you know, the flip side of that is that it's a great time to be putting money to work. And so if I launch and put up a good early track record, you know, hopefully that'll make it easier to raise money over time. And that was my thinking as I was sitting there May 1st of 2020. And, you know, now in hindsight, everybody's like, oh yeah, you know, like you launched at a great time. And so you had this great performance, but you know, uh, you benefited from this good timing. And that's what everybody says now when I talk to them. These, nobody remembers that May 1st of last year, it was terrifying, you know, like it was terrifying time to be sitting there being like, you know, I'm going to plow all this, you know, I'm going to start my own fund. I'm going to start my audited track record and I'm going to put it all on the line right now when everybody in the world is freaking out. But, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to toot my own horn. Like I had the courage to like put money to work in that environment when everybody was freaking out. And yeah, now hindsight is 2020. Everybody's like, oh yeah, of course that was a good time to be putting money to work. At the time, nobody thought it was nobody. a good time to be putting money to work, you know? Nobody. Now, these same people who were like, there's no way I can give you money right now. I, you know, we're, 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 the world's ending. And so anyway, I'm really glad that I launched what I did. And I was up 88% in 2020 between May 1st and the end of the year. Um, and yeah, it was a good time to be putting money to work, but I also still dramatically outperformed, you know, the, the indices, um, you know, I think from May 1st until the end of the year, in, the indices were up 30% or something. And, you know, I was up 88% net of fees. Um, so anyway, I'm, so, so yes, I'm going to, I'm going to take credit for that, but, but yeah, so I'm happy to, we can talk more about it, but yeah, I, I did make a big bet on, uh, you know, can US cannabis. Um, and that also performed really well last year, specifically um, kind of in November when, um, you know, Democrats took the uh, White House and, and um, the House. Uh, so, you know, the stocks really rallied. Yeah. So what, so what was the thought process on saying, okay, because there's two, two things that you had to get to, right? You're like, okay, one, I want to put capital work at the worst time ever, or mm-hmm. sorry, not the worst time ever, potentially the best time ever, but like, yeah, when no one's doing anything. Right. And then this, yeah. And then the second jump is, okay, well, I'm going to use, I'm going to deploy this capital in us cannabis stocks, you know? So let, let's get to that, that second jump, you know, what, what inspired you then to make, to place these bets on in us cannabis? Yeah, so so U.S. cannabis uh, is something I had been following um, for a few years already. At that point, um, you know, and and my biggest holding uh, that I bought that contributed a lot last year, and I still am a shareholder of, is this company Green Thumb Industries. Uh, and um, so so that's that's my biggest holding, uh, biggest cannabis holding in in my fund, and. Um, you know, it was a big contributor last year. I still am a shareholder of the stock, still really bullish, super bullish on this company. Uh, but, but yeah, so when I was at Mercado at my former firm, um, you know, we invested in Green Thumb Industries right after it went public. It went public in the summer of 2018. And I met with the CEO on the roadshow when they were going public. And that was really when I first started learning about the U.S. cannabis industry. And I mean, I was just trembling with greed, you know, at, uh, at the opportunity. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it because I feel like it's, it's not broadly understood. And um, 
you know, I think it's an incredible, like basically a generational investment opportunity that, you know, if I'm right about it, um, you know, hopefully I'm never going to have to do anything else again, <laughs> you know, after, after this works out, if it works out the way that I hope. Um, but, 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 uh, you know, part of the misunderstanding, I think uh, the reason people are don't, don't really appreciate what's happening is because can't of what's happened in Canada, right? Um, Canada legalized marijuana in 2018. And so when people think about public equity cannabis investments, you know, the vast majority of people just think about these Canadian companies like Tilray and Canopy Growth, um, which basically what happened to the, like when Canada legalized marijuana in 2018, these companies like Tilray, Canopy Growth, they went through this huge bubble in their stock market, right? Like the prices went up to like insane, unjustifiably high prices, and then they've crashed. And uh, it turns out that those companies are just not good businesses. They've never made money. They have no path to making money. And their stocks got overhyped and they're just not good businesses. And the reason why is it just has to do with the way that Canada legalized marijuana, where basically the government still really controls the distribution and captures a lot of the value in the value chain. And these companies that everybody heard of, like Tilray and Canopy Growth, at the end of the day, those are just farming businesses. And farming businesses suck. I mean, they're bad businesses. I mean, no farmer in the history of the world has ever gotten rich. I mean, you never hear the story about like, oh, that really rich farmer, you know? And, um, you know, I'm joking about it. It's sad, but it's, it's just kind of the, the way it works. It's a commodity. Uh, and so there's not a lot of value in producing it. And, and, but because Canada legalized at, the fed, at their federal level, uh, those companies, Tilray and Canopy Growth, they were allowed to list their stocks on, uh, you know, the major U.S. stock exchanges. And so any retail investor or anybody who wanted to get exposure to cannabis, that was the obvious way to do it. And so people didn't really appreciate or understand that, look, that's, those are the readily available investment opportunities but those happen to be companies that are not uh, going, not set up to really make money. Even though cannabis is going to be this big growth industry, those companies are just not positioned to make money from it. So you've had this unfortunate situation where a lot of retail investors and people kind of like had this bad experience investing in cannabis. And, and, and so they don't understand what's happening in the U.S. But what's happening in the U.S. is totally different. And it's very ironic because this company, Green Thumb Industries, uh, is making tons of money today, <laughs> real EBITDA, real free cash flow, and still growing its top line at mind-boggling rates, uh, and will continue to do so for the next decade. So it's like a, a combination of profitability and growth that I've never seen in any other industry. Um, and the runway for growth is still, you know, we're still just in the earliest innings of it. Um, but because our federal government still hasn't legalized marijuana, this company, Green Thumb Industries, is not allowed to list its stock on the major U.S. stock exchanges. And so it trades over the counter 
And so, you know, retail investors either don't know about it or can't buy it. And even major funds um, from a compliance standpoint are not allowed to buy it. And so you have basically all of these uh, potential investors who have not been able to buy the stock and are still not and still won't be able to until we have some kind of federal reform. But for me, I don't mind, you know, just owning the stock and waiting for that to happen. And one day, I mean, I'm still hoping it's going to happen before the midterm elections next year. But one day there will be some cannabis federal reform here. It's completely inevitable. Uh, you can't have 40 out of 50 states, you know, saying this is legal and the federal government still saying it's illegal. It doesn't even make any sense. So one day it'll happen and the stock will be able to uplist to major U.S. exchange. And, you know, every retail investor, every fund is going to want exposure to it. And the stock is just going to go absolutely bananas, I think, when that happens. And, uh, you know, we'll see if I want to keep working after after that happens or not. Uh, but but I, I'm happy to talk about I, I realize I haven't even talked about the actual business. So I, I can go into well, what they actually do. Well, yeah. well, we'll get, okay, you know, let's go there. So tell, tell us real quick, you know, what what is Green Thumb doing? And why is this a compelling opportunity, in your opinion? Yeah, so with all so, the expectations that you just said, also in your opinion, just want to make sure right, right, everybody. Right, yeah. that's well, so so yeah, so what's going on with cannabis in the U.S. is very state by state, right? Like you know, each state is just kind of legalizing um, cannabis um, with their own kind of framework, and you know, now you have I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's like some something like 40 out of the 50 states have some kind of legal regime. Uh, and, um, you know, the earliest states that legalized, um, like Washington, Oregon, California, even, um, they have not proven to be like very business friendly. Uh, and that was, that was the main reason is they didn't put any limits on supply. And those also happen to be states where it's easy to grow outside. And so, you know, there's just, there's just kind of lots of oversupply, rampant illegal market. Um, and so it, it hasn't been very profitable uh, for companies to be doing business in those states. But all of the states that have legalized in the last few years, including like most of the East Coast states that have legalized, have done it with like a limited license framework. Uh, and it just kind of, it kind of reminds me basically of like regional casinos almost. Like I grew up in Pennsylvania and I still remember when I was a kid in the early nineties, you know, when Pennsylvania legalized gambling and they basically said, at, when they first did it, they were like, you know, we're going to allow four casinos in the entire state, you know, and uh, they just kept it limited. Um, and so, you know, they had a process for awarding those four uh, licenses and, you know, four casinos got set up in the state and it was basically just kind of like a regulated oligopoly. And those four casinos just printed money for a long time. And, you know, fast forward 30 years there's more than four casinos in Pennsylvania right now, but there's not like a hundred, you know, I, I don't even know the exact number today, but maybe it's like 10 or something like that. And they're all still, uh, 
earning great returns on capital, you know? So like it, you know, I think people uh, worry that like cannabis is going to basically, so, so, so basically what Green Thumb has done is they went, they were really early in figuring out what was going on. They, the company was founded in 2014. It's based in Chicago, Illinois is its home state. And so they basically realized what was going on, where all these states on the East Coast were setting up these limited license regimes for legalizing cannabis. You know, like New York is a good example. Like when New York legalized cannabis, they basically just created and awarded 10 licenses. And they basically said each of these licenses is going to allow the owner of the license to operate four dispensaries. And so the entire state of New York, 20 million people is being served by 40 cannabis dispensaries. And the 10 companies that got the licenses to operate those 40 dispensaries um, are just printing money, you know, as you can imagine, you know? And so it, it is basically this, this regulated oligopoly, but it's happening at a state by state level. And so Green Thumb went around to all the different states that were legalizing with this kind of limited license framework. And they either applied for and won a license or they, if they, if they didn't win a license in the application process, then they just bought a license from one of the people who won one. Because a lot of mom and pops won these licenses and then didn't have any idea what to do with them. You know, it actually takes a lot of capital and a lot of expertise once you have the license to kind of build out um, the footprint because, because the product cannot cross state lines in every state um, where you get a license, you have to rebuild the entire supply chain, you know, and on the East coast, you can't really grow outside. And so you have to build a greenhouse, uh, you know, where you can grow, cannabis, then you got to build like a processing manufacturing facility where you take the plant, you turn it into, you know, CPG products. And then you, then you build out your retail dispensary where you sell those products. Uh, and so it takes a lot of capital. It takes a lot of time, takes a lot of expertise to know how to do that. And Green Thumb, like I said, they, you know, they've been at this for seven years and they, they now basically have expanded to I believe it's now 14 states. Uh, they're in 14 states. And in each of these states, it's a limited supply framework where they have one of a limited number of licenses and uh, they've kind of built out uh, the supply chain. And um, they, so they're just, they're just earning just insane returns on capital. They're doing it across 14 different states. They've now become basically the leader in the industry because, you know, they have close to 70 dispensaries now across 14 states. And they're just, they're, they're one of the biggest players. So they have, they have, you know, the most kind of institutional knowledge, expertise. I love the CEO. I mean, I, he's by, I met with a ton of these cannabis CEOs. He's by far in my mind, the, the best, uh, you know, well, best operator, best capital allocator, best, you know, thinker, um, most aligned with shareholders, uh, you know, or he's very aligned with shareholders. So, so anyway, um, 
that's kind gotcha. of the high level overview. Yeah. Got it. All right, cool. Well, thank All right. So I, I have a couple, you know, anecdotal things using Green Thumb as an example, but let's sure. touch on, on the last thing you were just talking about, management team. You just mentioned you love the CEO. What is it about, what, what are certain things about management that you, that you look for, you find compelling, other than the obvious align with shareholders? That one, I think we can all agree, like we would prefer that, <laughs> but right, right, right. what are some of the intangibles maybe? Uh, are you talking about in campus or just in general? Let's say in general, and then you can, yeah. if you want, you can use Green Thumb as an example. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm an investor. Like, I come from a financial framework, so you know, I think about capital allocation kind of being the most uh, the, the thing that I can kind of like um, look at. Uh, the most to kind of understand like whether CEO is making good kind of capital allocation decisions, whether they make sense. Um, and, you know, so, so I think that's, that's one of the most important things. I mean, over time, that's how value gets created, right? I mean, you have to invest capital at a rate of return that exceeds your cost of capital. And that's, that's the recipe for value creation. And so, um, so I think that that's the thing I spend a lot of time on is just kind of looking at how the management team has allocated capital and, and whether it makes sense or not. Um, and then, you know, then you, you talk about investor communication also, you know, like, and execution of the operations. I think those are kind of the biggest, biggest things, you know, like what did they tell investors they were going to do and then did they do it or not? You know, uh, um, uh, you know. I, I think those are some of the things um, that you can observe as an outsider to kind of determine whether this is a good management team or not. And then, you know, obviously not if you're a retail investor or a small fund. You know, you don't always get to talk to them. But um, you know, if, if you do get to talk to them, then it's it's really just talking through, uh, you know, asking them questions about like decisions that they made or are making and why they're doing that. And then just kind of using your judgment to assess whether what they're saying makes sense or not, you know? And, and uh, you know, then, then that's, cause that's like, it's, you know, it's process versus outcome, right? I mean, you know, you, even if they try things that don't work, as long as you talk to them and they have like rational, reasons or answers for why they did those things or tried those things, then, you know, then that's what you can hope for. So then, you know, uh, assessing the, the downside risk, right? Because as investors, we all got to make sure that we understand what the risk profile is and, and what your margin of safety. So when you're betting on cannabis, especially right now in the U.S., what what is what's the potential downside risk? Like, when, especially, let's use Green Thumb as the example. I right, mean, right. what what was what was the the big macro risk that you were are maybe were and continue to be worried about? And is and do you think that that makes sense to think about for other uh, U.S. cannabis stocks? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean the the thing that everybody worries about is just kind of like over supply right or or you know i i think you know when i think people who haven't spent as much time on it or um just kind of uh 
I think people haven't spent as much time on it. Like the, the bear case that they worry about is, you know, isn't this a commodity at the end of the day? And, you know, your whole thesis rests on the fact that, you know, these states are limiting the supply. And so you have these regulated oligopolies. But what if that changes? You know, like what if this, what if these states just let in a whole bunch more supply? Markets get oversupplied. And, you know, right now these companies are earning amazing returns on capital, but as more competition is allowed to come in, won't that drive down the returns on capital? Um, and, uh, you know, so, so, so that bear thesis rests on basically each of these states or each of these 14 states that Green Thumb is in, you know, all kind of allowing in much more supply. But I think there's like, many reasons where I don't really worry about that happening or, or, you know, the effects on green thumb, even if that were to happen, you know, like I think, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about cannabis, like there's so many, I think there's analogies that you can make to like a lot of different industries um, that we've seen in the past. You know, I already talked about regional casinos. I think that's like one, one model you can look at and say, like I said, you know, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, right? Like over 30 years, they've expanded from four casinos to 10 casinos. Uh, and I keep saying 10, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's, it's, it's closer to 10 than it is to 50. Right. Uh, um, and, but, but wouldn't they generate more tax revenue if they did have 50 casinos in the state? Like, yeah, of course they would. but do they want 50 casinos in the state? Like, do they want uh, a casino on every corner? Like, no, they don't, you know, like, the, the, like there's, there's uh, obviously societal effects that that would have. And I think, I think that's one analogy you can make to cannabis. It's like, yeah, would they generate more tax revenue if they awarded, you know, 50 licenses instead of 10? Like, yeah, but do they want, do they want cannabis on every corner? Like, no, it's been illegal for 100 years, you know, like they, they want it to be, controlled. And that's one of the things where that's one of the reasons I love Green Thumb is because like they've proven across 14 states that they are the operator that the state wants to partner with, you know, like they've created jobs, they've uh, delivered a ton of tax revenue, they've done it safely. Uh, and um, they've done it across 14 states. So now as new states legalize, like they're more likely to want green thumb to come into their states because they've, they've kind of like proven that they're, that, you know, they can do it well. And so, you know, regional, regional casinos is one you can look at. I mean, obviously tobacco, obviously alcohol, um, other CPG kind of companies, you know, that you, you can look at parallels in all these different industries. And, you know, I think it's funny also like people, are, people would say, you know, when I talk to people who are, skeptical again they make their their this is their concerns like well yeah what about when these regulatory barriers to entry go away and part of me is thinking like well I, first of all i don't know if they ever will based on my regional casino casino analogy but let's say that they do right like <clears throat> mcdonald's uh you know fast food is like one of the most competitive industries like you can find right? Like there's no barriers to entry. Anybody can like start a fast food restaurant. 
does that mean McDonald's is worthless? Like, no, McDonald's crushes it, right? They crush it. And so uh, like there's other ways that you can have a competitive advantage besides these regulatory barriers to entry that I think may, may continue for much longer than people think. Uh, but, but also that is, that is allowing Green Thumb to build up their moat. You know, like they've been at this already for seven years. And by the time these, you know, if these regulatory barriers to entry ever completely fall away, it's not happening anytime soon. You know, I can tell you that, like, you know, we can see the next few years uh, of legislation kind of like coming down the pipeline already. And like, there's nothing on the horizon that would suggest, (laughs) you know, that any of these states is like really eager to like massively like open up their market. You know, it's the opposite. Like they're going way slower than (laughs) I wish they would go. Right. right? Um, You know, like Virginia, Virginia agreed to legalize recreational marijuana and they have a start date of July, 2024. <laughs> it's like two and a half years before they're allowing even the first sale. <laughs> and it's kind of like, people are worried these, all these barriers are gonna just fall away instantly. And like tons of competition is gonna come in. Like that is not what's happening. <laughs> you know, like Green Thumb, they already have a seven year head start. They're gonna have at least a few more years uh, where they're getting to kind of build up the institutional expertise, build up their supply chain. And the real holy grail, and this is part of the reason I really like their CEO, the real holy grail is the creating branded consumer products, you know, um, just like you have in other industries, right? Like, like tobacco or alcohol, like look at those industries where like, you know, Marlboro, the inputs into a pack of Marlboro cigarettes costs like pennies, literally right but like people will pay ten dollars a pack for that because it's a brand that they um you know that they're comfortable with and that they're associated with i mean same with alcohol it's like gray goose i mean how much does it cost to make like the vodka in a gray goose bottle right like it's it can't be much right this is i mean look this is an interesting question and i'm gonna expose myself here as a as a as a toker uh, in the past, you know, sure. um, yeah. I mean, and granted, I, you know, I, I, I always was never, I, I, you know, the effect that each maybe different strand can have on you, but a lot of that also is dependent on the setting too. You, you know, if someone says it's a sativa or something and you end up, I think the sativa is the upper, right? So that, you know, you could say it's a sativa, but I might pass out in two minutes because I'm just right, tired. Right. And I took, yeah. Or it's an indica and next thing I know, I'm up for three hours. You know, like you right. never, it, it all depends on the setting. So using that example of how to really brand certain products, like with tobacco, with alcohol, you know, there's this, it's categorical. You know, it's a different taste. You know, it's a different effect. And with cannabis, yeah, you will have that different effect depending on the strand. But you're also talking about stuff that, I mean, yes, things have changed quite a bit, maybe since my college days in terms of how, you know, uh, uh, I guess in mass production, of course, of of various flour and and cannabis and stuff. But it's still somewhat mind boggling to me when, when companies are talking about creating a brand around a certain type of flour strand or something like that, because it's just so dependent on 
you know, it's like, it's like your groceries, man. You know, you get a honey crisp apple, but two honey crisp apples are not going to always taste the same, you know? So it's a, so it's an interesting thought, thought process I've had when it comes to like the idea of branding of consumer cannabis products and like yeah, that no. being a real moat in, in any shape or form. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's definitely going to happen. I mean, I think it's definitely happening and you know, I think, I think this is why it's so exciting too, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, like anybody, I mean, obviously there's like hardcore users, but like a lot of people who've like tried cannabis in the past, right? Like, yeah, it was in somebody's dorm room. It was like some random baggie that like somebody had and like, who knows like what the experience was, right? Um, uh but like, I think this what's so exciting as you think about like five, 10 years from now that you are going to have like consistency of experience, you know, from like a consumer branded products, like you're going to have consistency of experience. You're going to have like real quality control. Um, and you are going to have, I, I think you touched on like sativa versus indica. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, you know, from what you like all the different, like cannabinoids and terpenes and like all, all these things that like these companies are just starting to like scratch the surface of being able to like formulate like really specific, um, you know, experiences and products um, right. based on like, based on like research. I mean, like, you know, they've never been, nobody has ever been able to do like research before. Uh, and so now that they can and like, they're learning more about the plant and different strains and, you know, different formulations and like all this stuff. I think it's like super exciting yeah. that you're going to have like all these different products That's a good point. Um, and, you know, like, and for specific use cases, you know, like they already are, they make like ones that are specifically to like help you go to sleep, you know, for people who have insomnia, you know? Right. Uh, and I think that's, what's also exciting. It's like, there's just decades of like, mountains of anecdotal evidence you know of like even like from a medical standpoint too right like people using it for sleep for pain for anxiety right. and and again that's been like without any research or like specific formulations like and you know once companies can really start to do specific research in these formulations like i think you're going to have like an explosion of kind of uh, different products and it's, it's going to be super exciting. And I, I think that's another thing that people don't are not appreciating right now. For sure. And you know what, I guess, and, and I should probably correct myself. Like, I, <laughs> like I've seen, I've seen, you know, like I have friends and family, you know, they get this, but I'm mostly talking about the gummies, like the edibles yeah. that that freaks me out the most. Cause like I've done the edibles back in the day. That's a lot of trial and error right now. That's that, like, I see it. I'm like, all right, I, I know my experience is back in the day. Like I'm not about to do like well, trial yeah, and error with, with some of that stuff. No, exactly. I think a lot of people have that experience where like, you know, you made a brownie and you, you had no idea how much was in it. And then all of a sudden, then like you weren't high at all. And then all of a sudden you were just like, out of completely out of your mind and you end up having a bad experience because you had way too much right um but i think now i mean already now like you know green thumb and some of these other companies they make products that'll you know that you can buy gummies and it'll say 
you know, each one of these gummies has five milligrams of THC. And right. so, you know, exactly um, what you're getting. And, you know, microdosing is actually a huge thing for, um, to kind of convert new um, people who haven't tried it before. You know, like if you want to start, you know, you can have a two and a half milligram uh, THC gummy or, right. or, you know, and that's a good way to like start. And it'll make sure that you don't have that like horrible kind of experience you know, where you have way too much and then you never want to do it again, you know? So, so Sean, what, so what is, what are some of these companies that, that, you know, are clearly out there, they have a name brand, what are they getting wrong? I mean, look, I'm in LA, MedMen is on every frigging corner here. You know, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I remember looking at their financials a while back and everybody, you know, I think a kindergartner could look at their financials and be like, hey, oh my God, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, what what are some of these brands? Full discussion, not shareholder and meta. Um, you know right. what what are what are some of these companies? What are they doing wrong? Like why? What's happening? Yeah, well, I think too Med fast. Med like what? Yeah, I, I think so. I think a lot of them kind of got over their skis in terms of like building out their infrastructure ahead of you know having revenue to support that and. Um, you know, it, it is a massive growth industry, you know, like, uh, I think this year, legal US cannabis sales in states where it's legalized are gonna are on track for something like $24 billion. And, you know, most projections say, it should be a $100 billion industry by the end of this decade. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that could even be low. Uh, but so, you know, you can do the math and it's like, you know, 15, 20% top line CAGR for the industry for the next 10 years. Uh, and um, so it, it, it is this massive growth opportunity, but like you still have to execute, you know, like you still, you st that, that doesn't mean you can go hire like a hundred people um, and that you're all just going to be rich because like you're in the cannabis industry, right? Like, yeah, that, and that, again, that's one of the things I like about Green Thumb is like just super disciplined, like not getting ahead of their skis. Like, and I think a lot of these people viewed it or some of these companies viewed it more as like a land grab. Like, you know, we want to get licenses in as many states as possible. Whereas Green Thumb, like they're not trying to be in every single state, you know, they're trying to be in the best states and they're not trying to be, um, you know, they're, they're just not, not overbuilding and, you know, they're watching every dollar. And, um, and so, you know, that, that is where the management team makes a real difference. Um, Absolutely. You know, I think MedMen was kind of the poster child for um, having like irresponsible management that, you know, was, just running way, way too fat, you know, just, I mean, you hear crazy anecdotes and stories of like what was going on at their corporate headquarters, you know, like before they really had like any revenue uh, to really um, support that cost base. Because that, that's the other thing in this industry, which has made it tough so far, but I think ultimately is going to going to actually end up being beneficial for the companies. It's like, it's really hard to actually raise capital because of the, you know what i talked about earlier like because the the stocks trade over the counter you know institutional investors from for compliance reasons a lot of them are not able to invest and so it's it's really hard to raise capital and so 
you know, even though there's this huge long-term growth opportunity, um, you know, you have to kind of, at the beginning, you have to be able to bootstrap yourself to profitability, um, you know, cause, cause there's not a lot of available capital. And I, that's another reason I think green thumb just has a huge advantage. Now they're already, I mean, they're, um, already run rating like, uh, you know, close to $400 million of EBITDA, you know, uh, um, and, um, so they're generating a lot of cash that they can use to invest and that's just widening their moat, um, you know, against other competitors who, who just don't have, just can't get capital, uh, to invest. Absolutely. All right, Sean. So we're coming, uh, we're coming, uh, close to the, to the end here. And I, and I appreciate this. This has been a really fun conversation on cannabis and, you know, what, what's going on in the U S for that really, I mean, it's very much a special situations situation, uh, right, for lack right. of a better term. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about a few investing experiences that you had, current ones in- included here. But what would you say throughout your career? What, what was an investing experience that changed your career or impacted your career the most? Um, I don't know. I kind of feel like I've already talked about talked about. Uh, you know, I, th- I think personally, working working with the Pershing Square team at a very young age um, kind of taught me a lot. And then, you know, in Mercado, I kind of talked about um, Alexander and Baldwin and, and just kind of like engaging with some of the smaller companies. Um, but I, I think we've kind of covered, uh, covered a lot of them. Gotcha. Okay. No worries. Well, then to close, <laughs> no, no worries. All right. So to close this out here, then, um, you know, for folks, let, let's focus in on cannabis, you know, and our, this special situation, you know, for, let's say, you know, for investors that never even considered it might start thinking about it based on, you know, some of the things that we've talked about today, you know, what would you, your advice be for those folks that might be looking at cannabis finally for the first time? I would say it's, it's, it's really volatile, uh, right now. I mean, small caps in general are volatile, as you know, but I think especially uh, these cannabis stocks for, uh, because they're traded over the counter, because there's not a lot of institutional capital um, able to participate in the space, you know, the stocks move a lot. And so I think you almost just have to buy it knowing there's going to be like even above average volatility and, you know, just, just, you know, come back in a few years, you, you know, it resists the temptation to like, look at it every day, you know, just, just buy the stock, uh, come back in a few years. And I think you'll be really happy. And, um, and, um, but I, I think you do have to be careful too, you know, cause there are a lot of, uh, we touched on it a little bit, but like, it's, I think a lot of people fall into this trap where they're like, oh, you know, I want exposure to cannabis. It's this huge growth industry. And that's true. But again, there are a lot of companies that are not going to make it, you know, like, you know, the Canadian companies that didn't have good business models or MedMen that was just not run um, well enough, you know? And so um, I, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to... uh, you know, give specific stock recommendations. But like I said, I own Green Thumb. That's the one based on my research that I feel like is clearly, uh, you know, in my mind, going to do really, really well. And um, 
But, you know, there's an ETF also called MSOS, MSOs, basically. Um, so, you know, if you don't trust my research or you don't want to do your own research, um, I mean, you should do your own research. But if, but if you don't want to do research on a specific company, there is an ETF called MSOS that just owns kind of a basket of, of U.S. cannabis companies that um, is probably going to do well. Gotcha. All right. Well, Sean, with that, um, again, thanks for, for spending the time with me today to kind of be as uh, to really not BS, but like really <laughs> get into what's going on in cannabis a little bit from, uh, you know, for, from your perspective. So where can our audience go and find more information on you uh, to follow you, your website, you know, all that good stuff? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a website, um, but, you know, people, anybody who wants more information can reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find. I mean, on, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, just shoot me a message and, you know, happy to. You got to put, you gotta put a photo on there. You're, you're, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a, a, a great out. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, I, <laughs> I should do that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very obvious thing that I that I should do. Um, hey, get on Twitter, man. Come on, dude. I know. Well, David Polanski, who, um, you know, who introduced us, um, you know, keeps telling me I have to get on Twitter and uh, should, I should, I don't Free know. Marketing I, just, tools. I know. I just, I, I feel like I would waste so much time on Twitter that I don't know if it's worth, if it's worth me getting started. That's why I've just kind of not even started. Um, so, uh, you know, but I'll, I'll keep thinking about it. Very cool. All right. Well, Sean, thanks again, man. Really do appreciate you taking the time here. Good luck. Stay safe. Happy holidays and uh, happy new year. And yeah. uh, <laughs> look forward to chatting with you again. Yeah, you too. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again for having me and happy holidays and keep in touch. Thanks, man. Talk to okay. you soon. Bye. Bye. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.